So I do invite you to take your Bibles, if you have it with you, and open it to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, we're working our way through this book, and the goal um, for doing that was mainly because we are in a season of our church where we are considering also installing um, biblical deacons. But we said, let's do the whole book. Let's, let's, um, let's make that excuse to study another book in the Bible together. And um, just want to say last week's sermon on the qualification of an elder has unfortunately not been recorded. So if you'd like um, to, to, to find that sermon, you're welcome to let me know, and I can just send you my manuscript on that. But um, that, that sermon, unfortunately, won't be on the website. So just, uh, just apologies for that. But today we're going to study um, the spiritual deacons, um, what the qualifications for deacons are, and how we should be thinking biblically about deacons in the church. So let's read together God's word, 1 Timothy 3, from verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The reading of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and ask that you would please um, give us open hearts and open ears, that even as we study the office of a deacon, that you would speak to all of us about what a mature Christian looks like, and that we would be striving for that. Lord, please be merciful to us as a church when we think about deacons. May we think wisely about the process and trust you, Lord, for the outcome as well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you this. What is the purpose of the church? Now, there are many answers, and there's not just one right answer. There are many purposes, but one of those purposes is that what we find later in chapter 3. Just look at chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, what Paul writes there. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of what? The truth. The church, one purpose of the church is to be a pillar, a support, of the truth, to protect the truth. And we know that the truth is much more than just propositions, statements of facts. The truth ultimately is a person, the Lord Jesus. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So to lose truth is to lose Christ. To lose truth is to lose this, is to grieve the spirit of truth who wants to lead us into the truth and lead us to Christ. Truth is not something we can play with or something that we can deal lightly with. And as we have seen in the book of 1 Timothy, there are many dangers to the church of losing the truth, of not protecting the truth. Things like false teaching, false doctrines, um, things like men fighting with, with one another, not wanting to forgive one another, men having anger and quarreling. Things like women focusing mostly on their outward appearance instead of their character and their godliness. But there's another threat which we may not be aware of and might be a surprise to you that might threaten the truth in the church. And that one thing that can threaten the church and its 
its ability to hold up the truth is practical needs in the church. Practical needs. When the church grows by God's grace, and so therefore the needs of the church grows, there's a great temptation for the elders and the pastors to be become so involved of all the mercy ministries of the church and in all the lives of its members and all the practical needs of the church that they start to neglect the preaching and teaching of God's word. Before you know it, um, Sunday just the, the sermon just feels a bit more bland. It doesn't feel like it's centered on the truth and centered on the Bible. Because a past, that pastor is not spending his time what he's supposed to be doing. Hours and hours in the study to make sure that he's cutting the word of God straight. And beloved, in comes the deacon. The office of deacon is essential for the church to function and to thrive. Just as essential as, as the faithful biblical elders are, so deacons are also essential so that the word of God is not neglected in the church. The word deacon, most of you would know, just literally means a servant. That's what a deacon does. They serve. But please remember, just like we all want to strive for the character and the quality of an elder, so we all need to strive to serve. That's all of us, all of our calling is to deacon, in a sense, right? None of us can just be here at church or be a Christian and not serve. You are called to serve with your various gifts that God has given you, right? So, so as we consider the office of deacon, we'll look at the deacon's purpose, the deacon's character, the deacon's doctrine, his test, his, assur- his assurance, and his reward. So let's first consider then the deacon's purpose. What is the purpose of a deacon. And turn with me now quickly to Acts 6. So we're just going to briefly look at Acts 6 to look at the purpose of the deacon. Acts chapter 6. Look at verse 1. It says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the church has been growing into thousands at this time. And right at the start, there's already a serious issue that threatens the unity of the church and the joy of the church. The Hellenists, which is just another word for the Greeks, the Greek-speaking Christians, there was a complaint that their widows were being neglected. And the Hebrew widows were being preferred or being, um, there's favoritism there. And this is not, can you imagine, this is not a small problem in the church, in the early church. This might be the first sign of discrimination or racism in the church. So you can think of this attitude of we will feed our people first, then your people can get some food. Right? That's nothing short of misunderstanding the gospel, which is the gospel has made us Greek and Jew. We are both one in Christ. There's no longer black and white and you're, you and me. It's, it's only us. Our people is the church, right? But this issue cannot be ignored. So yet look at how the apostles handle it in verse 2. So look at verse 2. It says, And the twelve, the twelve apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Wait, what? It's not right to serve tables? It's not right to care for orphans? How can anything be more important than taking care of the orphan, the widows? 
How could you say that to preach God's word must take a higher priority for the apostles or their role than practical Christianity on the floor? Well, first we must remember the role of the apostles. What were they supposed to be doing? They were like functioning like a functional pastor, like a functional elder. If the preaching of the word of God is neglected, imagine the consequences of that in a church. Eternal consequences. Souls will be lost. We think of Christ's words. to say, what does it profit a man if you gain the whole world and you forfeit your soul? What does that help you? We think of Christ's words. that says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Something needs to be done, yes, but by no means to neglect the preaching of the word of God. Woe to us. As a church, if we ever consider the preaching of God's word as a low priority in the church, woe to us if we think that whenever there is tension between the word and practical needs, the word of God must be neglected. But woe to us if we don't come up with a solution to feed the widows. Do you see? It's not that we say we're not going to take care of the problem. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God our Father is what? To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Or as John would say, if anyone has the world's goods and you see your brother in need, yet you close your heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Right? So do you see the dilemma? Here's a a contrast. We have two equally important commandments to obey. We have to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we have to love our neighbor. But when those two seem to come in conflict, what do we do? Answer a division of labor. A division of labor. Throughout scripture, we find this pattern of it is not good. The first time that was said was with Adam. It is not good that the man should be alone. What did God do? He made him a a beautiful wife, a helper, okay, fit for him. When Moses was overburdened with tasks in Israel, what did his father-in-law tell him? It is not good that you are doing this work alone. And then they appointed faithful men to help him in the work. And now here the apostles say, it is not right that we should give up preaching. And this establishes the foundation of the deacon. This is the work and purpose of a deacon, to come in and relieve the burden of the elders so that they can continue focusing on what they should be doing. Look at what they did. Look at the solution in verse 3 to 6. It says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Permius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. See, what was the solution? So here we have the word, the the same Greek word of deacon is used here, um, to serve tables and to serve the word of God. So this is how we see this foundation. The solution was seven men will oversee the ministry of the widows. They will oversee and make sure that that all of the sheep of Christ are taken care of in their practical needs. So we may say three main purposes of a deacon from this text. Number one, deacons are pastoral assistants. Okay. Number one, a deacon is supposed to be a pastoral assistant. They are to free up the elders from 
um, practical ministry so that the elders and the pastors can keep on focusing on the preaching of the word. Second purpose, to ensure that no one in the church is neglected or overlooked in their needs. No one in the church is neglected or overlooked. Deacons are to be constantly looking out for the needs of the church, anticipate problems in the church, and seek to fulfill those needs. For example, if there are many students in our church, deacons are to think about how can we provide transportation for the, for the students to come to church. Right? That should be like a deacon's mindset. Or let's say there's someone in the church that just is overburdened, over, like just a lot of responsibilities falls on one person. The deacons then come in and seek to involve more or enlist other members of the church to, to, to help that, that member. And so forth and so forth. You see, so that's the deacon's purpose. Number three, lastly, we may say the purpose of a deacon is to be a peacemaker. A peacemaker. Imagine the same situation of these seven men had to deal with. They needed to be full of the spirit and of wisdom in order to ensure that the Hellenists and the Hebrews are reconciled. Right? And this then becomes important as we consider their qualification, which is our second point. So let's turn back to 1 Timothy 3. And let's now consider their qualifications. What are their qualifications? Oh, sorry, before, before that, I hope you still have your finger in Acts 6, sorry. One, one verse in Acts 6 before we go to 1 Timothy, my apologies, is verse 3. The first two of qualifications are in verse 3. What does it say? They must be men full of the Spirit and of wisdom. They needed to be full of the Holy Spirit. That is to be under the control of the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. They are to be selfless men who seeks the welfare of others. They are to care about Christ, care about his word, that the word of God is undistractedly preached and care about God's people. Right? Only spiritual men are to be deacons. And then secondly, they are to be men full of wisdom. And that's probably one reason why we're starting to read Proverbs. Deacons need to know Proverbs. They need to know how to solve riddles. <laughs> okay? They need to know how to solve very difficult relational issues between people. I love how one, um, the one nine marks journal of deacons, they, they call deacons the shock absorbers of the church. They, they take a lot of impact, a lot of tension that is happening in the church. Deacons are supposed to be coming in to help people reconcile. I love how one pastor explained this reality. He says, in his church, he says, my church, we have passed over individuals with specific skills that would be beneficial in deaconship, like building and management and finances, computers, and so on, in favor of less skilled individuals who were better peacemakers. See, so for, when we think of deacons, we shouldn't first think of their skills. We should first think of their track record of conflict management. <laughs> Are they good peacemakers? Are they full of wisdom? Are they full of the Holy Spirit? Are they able to come into very messy situations and deal with it? In a very godly way. Now this we see in 1 Timothy as well. So now let's turn there. Sorry. Okay, let's, I hope I'm not making you dizzy. Okay, let's go to 1 Timothy now. 1 Timothy chapter 3 again. So again, what should strike you about the qualification of a deacon is the main thing is their character. The main thing is the kind of men they ought to be. Not their skills. And also how similarly the deacon and the elder is. Like the qualifications of an elder and a deacon are Almost synonymous, except for one exception, with one exception, the deacon is not to be able to teach. He doesn't have to be a teacher. He doesn't have to be able to preach or teach. So first, look at what they ought to be in verse 8. The first thing that they have to be, deacons likewise must be 
dignified. It means to be serious, a person worthy of respect. This person is not a jokester. You know, I just think it's a sign of immaturity when someone cannot be serious. Everything is a joke. Nothing wrong with the good sense of humor. That's not what we're what I'm talking about. But there's a type of maturity. There's a there's a type of a thing that a man must give up childish ways. He must be worthy of imitation. Right? People should want to become like him. He, is a, he has a conduct that is full of wisdom. He has good reputation with those in and outside the church. So that's dignified. The second thing is he must not be um, double-tongued. The Greek word literally says dialogos, two words, two tongues. He mustn't have two words. In other words, he mustn't be a, a hypocrite that says one thing, and then when he comes to other people, he says another thing, or he changes his tone. He's a chameleon. Like one with these kind of people, he changes, and then with these kind of people, he, he's different again. And especially because deacons come in in very sensitive matters of the church, and if they are double-tongued, they can hurt people. They can really hurt people. Jesus gave us the standard in Matthew 5. Look at Matthew 5, verse 37. He says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Your word, if you say yes, it must be as good as done. That's how you should think about your yes. And that's why you should be slow to say yes. And sometimes quicker to say no. Okay. So when a deacon says, I have it, or I will do it, our confidence should be, it's done. I know it's settled. He's not a double-tongued man. So here's a question. Does this person have a track record of keeping his commitments? Or is behind him... Behind his life, just a track record of half-accomplished tasks and half-finished projects and everything is just getting started, but nothing is finished, right? He's never committed. He never just does what he says. Also, the deacon is not to be, verse 8, the next thing is addicted to much wine. Just like the elders, they should not be addicted to anything. So not addicted to alcohol, but not addicted to anything. Nothing should cloud their judgment. Nothing should should stop them from thinking soberly. If there's a practical need in a church and you call the deacon and he's drunk, how can he help you? Right? So verse 8 continues, um, not greedy for dishonest gain. Often deacons are the people that are working with the finances of the church. So if they are greedy for dishonest gain, then that's going to be bad. They're going to be constantly helping themselves like Judas Right, who constantly helped himself in the money bag. So a deacon must be free from the love of money. He must be faithful. Scanning down, look at the qualification. Also includes an exemplary marriage in verse 12. It says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. Remember what we said this meant. This is the same word in, in, in for the elders, husband of one wife. doesn't mean he has to be married. It means he has to be a one-woman man. He has eyes for only one woman. And if he's single, he's then an example of purity. He's an example of not looking at many women, not looking at pornography, for example. And chapter 4, verse 12 gives us this example for Timothy. Let's look at chapter 4, verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in 
purity. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. This is what a, a, a mature man should, he should treat women like his sisters, in purity. No one is just a potential partner, right? This is a one-woman man. He's not hopping from one relationship to the next. He is pure and he treats others. He's like Job that has made a covenant with his eyes that he will not even look. Remember, that's the standard that Christ has set. If we even look with lust, we have committed adultery. We have made a covenant with our eyes to say, I won't look. I will only look at my wife. If I don't have my wife, wait for my wife. Look at Christ. But he also must be a good parent, not just to have a good marriage. Look at verse 12, the rest of it. It says, managing their children and their own households well. His life as a parent must also be an example for others to follow. He does not neglect his children. He is at home. He is involved. He manages. He stands up. He does, he, he does things for his children. And I think the logic applies the same for a deacon as for an elder. If a man cannot manage his own family, his own household, how can he manage God's church? How can he have that bigger responsibility? And then the deacon must be tested by these attributes. Look at verse 10. There's a test in verse 10, a process. Let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. You see the word first and then the word then, okay? First this must happen, then you make them deacons. So it's a big mistake to just nominate, vote, boom, sham, bam, thank you, ma'am, right? And you are in. Um, and, and, and there was no process of testing. And I want to add another thing, training. Okay, So testing and training for a deacon. And we just push people into the office. That's, that's dangerous. That's a dangerous thing. There must be a test. And so the process would look like here at Heritage, it would look something like this. We see in Acts 6 that it was the church that brought nominations to the apostles. So in that spirit, the members of the church would nominate people for deaconship to the elders. The elders then will, will examine them and, and um, test them by training them about what is their duties and how should they be, be thinking. And they will be given an area of responsibility to see whether they are blameless if they would serve there. And only after that are they fit for service and fit for the office, right? And then they are brought to the church and the church then prays and then we choose and elect deacons. This too must be part of the qualification of a deacon. It's the test. Beloved, even though this is what we must be looking for in a man who is to be a deacon, this should be true of all of you. You see, so although these qualifications are specifically true to be of an elder and a deacon, how it should be true of us. You should be striving. If you are not a one-woman man, a one-man-woman, okay? <laughs> um, if you are addicted to anything, if you are not keeping by your word, your commitments, those are the areas you need to be repenting of. You need to ask Christ to forgive you, and you need to repent and trust him to change you by his grace. This is what we should be doing. So where should you grow? Where, where's the areas you are not mature as a Christian? So we've seen a deacon's purpose. We've seen his qualifications. And now we consider his doctrine, a deacon's doctrine in verse 9. 
Look at verse 9, a deacon's doctrine. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. One author said it well, the table waiters needs to know what's on the menu. Okay, so the deacons that are serving practical needs needs to know their Bibles. You see, while deacons are servants at heart, they are also functioning in a type of a leadership capacity. Therefore, they must also have sound teaching, sound understanding. They must hold the mystery of the faith. Mystery is just another word for something that was concealed in the past and now revealed in the gospel. So it was a mystery, and now it's clear. Now it's been revealed. It's the mystery that's revealed in Christ, the gospel. So the gospel is centered on the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. So deacons are not just to be great doers. They are also to be great thinkers. They need to be biblical men that knows their Bibles and know how to apply the Bible in wisdom. Again, think about them entering into a very tense relational tension or people that needs financial help. They need to know how the word of God applies to their situation, right? When they're dealing with orphans or the sick or the needy, they need to give the gospel to those people as well as practical service and mercy service. They need to be emotional and spiritual and practical in their help. Deacons are are to be ready to disciple people. So, for example, often people come and they request financial assistance. A wise deacon will ask questions like this. Not just jump in and give the person money, but ask, does this person know biblical principles about finances? Does this person have a budget? Is this person spending his money wisely? How can I equip this person to handle his money better in the future? That's how a wise deacon must be thinking about, thinking of. But more than that, not just having sound doctrine, look at what it says. They need to know how to apply it and live it out. It says, with a clear conscience. So they hold the mystery with a clear conscience. The deacon is not a sinless man, and therefore he knows how to take the gospel and apply it to himself. When he falls and when he fails, he knows passages and promises that says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. He knows that he does not have to punish himself for his sins because Christ has been punished on the cross for his sins. He knows he is acceptable to God the Father, not because of his faithfulness or his works, but because of Christ's work in his place. He knows that God is busy changing him and making him more into the image of his son. And this will lead to a clear conscience because Christ has forgiven him and he is repenting of his sins. Ironically, when you embrace the gospel of grace, it also frees you from sin. Listen to Titus 2 verse 14. It says, Christ, um, the Lord, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So you might ask of a potential deacon, do we see the deacon as someone who has a track record of repentance? Does he know his Bible well and is he living it out? But just like elders elders have help, the deacon, so deacons have help. And here we go to the next point, a deacon's assistance or the the deacon's assistance or assistant, you could say, in verse 11. Look at verse 11. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, The ESV takes an interpretive approach to this passage. It doesn't say their wives. It literally says, likewise, 
the women. Likewise, women are to be like this, okay? So that word for women, gynaikos, can either mean wife or woman, depending on the context. So here we, may, we have to ask, what is, who are these women that Paul is saying they must be like this? Now, many have taken the position that this refers to deaconesses, female deacons. Now, the argument is not as weak as we might think, or it, it's a good argument. The argument is that since deacons are not the leaders of the church, only the assistants and the servants, therefore also women may be deacons. And they often reference Romans 16. Phoebe is called a deaconess or a servant of the church. Now, although we must have humility when we interpret this passage, I do not think this is what Paul had in mind. I don't think Paul thought of deaconesses in this passage for four reasons. So just I'm just going to list them quickly. First, it is not true that deacons did not function as leaders in the church. There is an authoritative position that, that deacons have. They are managing the church. There is an authority. They are still under the elders. They're submitting themselves to the elders, but they do have leadership in the church, managing, delegating responsibility. Secondly, there is a Greek word for deaconess. And that's, and Paul did not use the word here. So if, so the argument is, it's, if he wanted to say deaconess, he could have just used the word. But he doesn't. So maybe he has something else in mind. Okay. Number three, notice that what the, that these women are in verse 11 are sandwiched in between the qualifications of a male deacon. So from verse 12, he switches back to the male deacons. What he says, let deacons each be the Husband of one wife. So why does Paul put in the middle of the qualification of a deacon, the qualification of a deaconess, if he thinks of it as a separate thing? So it's more of a structure argument. Okay. And lastly, if Acts chapter 6 is the prototype deacon, notice that it was all men who were chosen. All men, it was seven men who were appointed to help the widows. Now, wouldn't a deaconess have been perfect to help the widows? Right, that would have been a perfect opportunity to just appoint a deaconess, but instead choose seven men that will manage this. For those reasons, I do not think that we should interpret verse 11 as deaconess. So that's the first view. But the second view is, like the ESV would take it, as the women here are the wives of the deacon. That's why the translation literally says, their wives. Now, that is more likely because it just it fits into the flow of thought. It's in the middle of the qualifications of a deacon. And the reason Paul would give qualifications for a deacon's wife and not for an elder's wife is that a deacon's wife can actually help him in his deaconship, where an elder's wife can't help him in preaching and teaching. Okay, so there is that natural boundary there. However, the weakness of that view is that the Greek doesn't contain the word there. So it doesn't say likewise they're women, it just says, likewise, women. If that possessive pronoun was there, it would also be crystal clear that he was thinking of the wives. So there's a third view, and this is the view I didn't know before I studied it, and this is my view currently, open to change, open to humble myself. If you have better arguments, please come and share it. But the third view is this. These are gospel women in the church who are qualified to serve alongside the deacons. So they don't, they're not necessarily the wives of the deacons. They're just qualified gospel women that are also assisting the deacons. They are their assistants. So women here, you have to hear this. This is important. Whatever view you take, your gifts, your talents, your 
input and service in the church is essential. Essential. We need you. We need women in the Bible who, well, we see women in the Bible, for example, in Jesus' ministry that was supporting Christ's ministry out of their own means, financially. We read of people like Phoebe that was a servant of the church. Listen to Philippians 4, verse 2 to 3. Syntyche and, and Iodia. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored. Look at the words. They have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So, beloved, don't, we don't get any idea from the Gospels or from Paul that the ministry of women was not important. Far from the truth. One commentator summed it up well. He says, the obvious conclusion is that whatever title they are given, women must be deeply involved in the mercy ministry of the church. And yet, even these women need to be qualified. <laughs> so, we also don't just give uh, these kind of positions for women's ministries and leadership um, just to any woman because he says what? Let the women, um, look at verse 11 again, be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. They are not to be gossipers. They're not to enjoy spreading juicy stories of people that they have found out. They are to be faithful in the little things and faithful in the major things. These are the kind of women we want to be involved. In conclusion, we see that the deacons, so we, here we see the deacons, assistant, and lastly, let's consider in closing the deacons' reward. The deacons' reward in verse 13. It says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So first, deacons gain a good standing for themselves. I think, I think it just means their standing in the church, their reputation amongst the saints. People respect deacons when they are faithful deacons. And Christians value that above all things because Christ taught us that who is the greatest among us? If we want to be the greatest, if you want to outshine everybody, what should you do? Right? You should be the biggest servant. That's what he said. Listen to Matthew 20, 25. Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your deacon, your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be deaconed, but to deacon, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Deacons are first among us because they are the greatest servants among us. What a, what a privileged position, right? What an honor. And that's exactly what Christ came to do. He came not to be deaconed, to be served. He came to, to serve and to give his life. What a reward to be like Jesus. What an what a encouragement to be like him. So we should not look down on the office of a deacon, it's a dignified, worthy office. Secondly, consider the second reward in verse 13. They gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The word confidence can either be boldness, assurance, or confidence. And whatever way, it, you can see it strengthens your faith, right? Your confidence in Christ, your boldness for Christ, 
as you serve him faithfully to speak of Christ. And it teaches us that one way to strengthen your faith is to serve. If you might be struggling with your faith, struggling if you, whether or not you are a Christian or serve, <laughs> that's one way to strengthen your faith in Christ. It's not to be passive and to be a consumer and just, what can I get? What can I get? But how can I give? How can I serve? How can I come and give myself? And this faith is where? It's in Christ, the deacon of all deacons, right? The servant of all servants. What, is, what has Christ done? How has he served us? He made himself a slave and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's what we want to become like, like him, because he has loved us. Seek greatness by becoming the least. You see the paradox there. Beloved, the office of a deacon is essential. It, it protects the preaching of the word as they relieve the burdens of the pastors and the elders that they can keep on focusing on preaching the word and praying. It, it, it protects the ministry of the word so that saints might be sanctified and sinners might be saved. Don't you want that? Then we should be praying for deacons in our church. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are majestic in your greatness. And your greatness was displayed on the cross when you came not to be served, to take, but to give, to give your life as a ransom, to pay for our multitude of sins. Lord Jesus, you are the deacon of all deacons, the best servant. And therefore God has highly exalted you above the heavens given you the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. O oh Lord, I pray that we would strive to become like, like you, Jesus. We would want to wash the feet of the saints and love the brothers and the sisters. Lord, may we be a church that are faithful in not just the preaching of the word, but also in caring for widows and orphans and the practical needs of the church. Please give us wisdom in the process of electing deacons, Lord. May we not be hasty with the decision. May we um, first do the testing appropriately and then appoint. Lord, please guide us. We look to you, Lord. You, you have to help us. Thank you that you will, Lord, by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.